You're listening to the Premier Podcast Network. everybody to Foundation Radio. My name is Adam Barnard. Thank you so much again for joining me today. My guest is the CEO of Ernest Media Empire, the editor at large for Philadelphia Magazine, the president of the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists, and the author of the new book, The Case for Cancel Culture, How the Democratic Tool Works to Liberate Us All, Mr. Ernest Owens. Mr. Owens, thank you so much for being on the program today. Thank you for having me on. This is exciting. I'm very excited to have you. I love this topic here. We've done an episode on this with Foundation Radio. If you go back into uh, the archives at foundationradio.net, you can see the episode. It's called Cancel Culture Isn't Real. And it's contextual because we do talk about it. And you you mentioned a lot of stuff in the book here, too, that that fits neatly in with the way that we talk about it. But I want to start sort of just as as a broad sense. What is your definition of cancel culture? That's a great question. Um, So cancel culture to me is when a person decides to cancel a person, place, or thing that they find to be detrimental to their way of life. So for clarity, cancel culture is not people, you know, being food critics or movie critics or, you know, or or those who just do not like something over personal and significant frivolous taste. So I always like to use the example, like a McDonald's example, like let's say you don't like to go to McDonald's because the food don't taste good. That's not canceling McDonald's. It's just your personal taste. But let's say you make a decision not to go to McDonald's anymore or choose to encourage people not to go there because hypothetically you feel that they are not paying their workers a fair livable wage. That is a little bit more, that's definitely more sophisticated. That is definitely a more pointed reason not to support it. And it's basically something that impacts your livelihood, your core vo- values, your your morals in a way that is not the same as just simply not liking it because it don't taste good. Because in that regard, you know, McDonald's could improve their food and you can simply like it. Or maybe you just had a bad patty that day. Um, so cancel culture is really about is, is really about that that detriment, that existential crisis, that that level of seriousness. And to be clear, Council culture isn't a conservative thing. It isn't a progressive thing. It's everybody thing. Everybody's canceling. Um, you know, everyone's canceling for various reasons. And some of us might disagree with why people choose to cancel something, right? But at the end of the day, it's at the individual's core root of dissent, which I believe is a democratic principle. You have the right to dissent. You have the right to boycott, to protest, and the civil matter. And when people are doing that, that to me is council culture. It's I, not cyberbullying. It's not ad hominem attacks. Um, because let's be clear, this is rooted in, in my opinion, this civility around this, right? If you're doing ad hominem attacks, there's no actual deliberate value. Again, it speaks to distaste. So if I just said Donald Trump's a moron and I just tweet that all day and I don't really articulate why I think Donald Trump's a moron, if I don't break down a call to action in a productive way, then it becomes less about the actual root of the issue, right? And so there's more to it. Now, sometimes it can lead to war, right? We, we've seen that. But there is 
a, a more sophisticated way of going about it. And I think what has happened is that because council culture is taking place everywhere, it's, it's everything everywhere all at once to some people, some people are beginning to conflate them. And I can see why. Right. I can see why there's a conflation. But essentially, council culture is a lot more sophisticated and pointed than a lot of people have made it seem out in the world. I agree with that. I think it, it's become a buzzword in a lot of ways. And we're seeing that kind of we're, we're seeing that now, too, with this whole idea of the quote unquote wokeness where everybody's like, oh, everything is so woke and this, that. And it just it feels very much like a dog whistle. Right. Like it's the wokeness. It's the cancel culture. But before that, it was the politically correct stuff that I remember hearing my parents generation talk about. And, you know, George H.W. Bush talking about PC and everything else. And it feels very much like a dog whistle. Like we really know what you're talking about here. It's this idea that people are upset and people want to be recognized and people want to understand that the things that you're saying impact different groups of people in different ways. I personally, I don't go to Chick-fil-A. Not my bag. I don't eat there. I don't support their their views on anti-LGBT movements. I don't eat there. I don't support that group. To me, when I think about cancel culture, it's always felt very personal, like a personal decision in that way, right? I'm not going to go out and tell anybody else, if you want to eat there, if you feel comfortable supporting that group, then that's fine, but that's not how I'm going to handle it. Right. But I do agree in the, in the sense where it's very, it's a, it's a democratic tool. And I know in the book you talk about, you go all the way back to like the beginning of the country with the Boston tea party. And you talk about the Montgomery bus boycotts, which I thought was very interesting how you kind of tied that all together. Tell the listeners how that, how you feel like the Boston tea party fits in with this idea of cancel culture. I'm, I'm really curious about that. Yeah, absolutely. So again, you think about it, right? The, the, during the Boston Tea Party, you know, um, they did not dump that tea because they thought the tea tasted bad. <laughs> they dumped the tea because they they were taking a stand against British tyranny. And so they were pushing against taxation without representation because that tea was taxing them, even though they did not have the rights to, you know, push back against those types of uh, taxes and, and whatnot. They had the stamp tax, they had all these taxes. And so they were pushing against something deeper. Um, when you look at the civil rights activists um, who boycotted Montgomery buses, it wasn't because they was like, these bus seats are uncomfortable and I hate the way the bus service is. No, they boycotted against them because they was pushing against the Jim Crow South and racial discrimination. So that is a textbook example. For example, you didn't boycott or choose not to support Chick-fil-A because you don't think the food tastes good. You know, before I knew the things I knew about Chick-fil-A many years ago, I was a gay who loved Chick-fil-A. I love the chicken. And when I read those articles, I was like, oh, I got to put it down and go somewhere else. Right, right. Um, but the food was so good. So we didn't decide not to do it because we think the food tastes bad. We made the decision because of what it represents and what it does, which these are all issues that impacts people's livelihoods. Right. So that's sophisticated level that cancel culture does that I feel like anything else isn't. And that's why I get upset when I see um, certain, you know, uh, comedians and people say, oh, I'm being canceled mm. when their movie doesn't sell at the box office or fans don't like it, or the critics don't like it for very, you know, you know, metrical reasons like, oh, it's not funny or, you know, I didn't like the acting. So they'll say now people will say stuff like, oh, I got canceled because of X, Y, and Z. And it's like, no, you didn't get canceled. You're just not funny. The movie wasn't good. <laughs> right. um, and that's right. okay. And you can say that. But I think what has happened is, is that powerful people have used this word cancel culture as, a, like you said before, but in my book, I call it a dog whistle specifically to shame people from having dissent. 
Yeah. So you're supposed to be shameful. It's like the thing where, you know, Donald Trump, you know, whenever he's mad at people at the press, he calls it fake news. So now everything's fake because it doesn't agree with you. Right. So now that's the dog whistle. Fake news is the dog whistle for any media company that attempts to hold him accountable. They will be subjected to be called fake. But it's not actually fake. It's because no, it's somebody fake. is saying like, hey, listen, this is. Yeah. But again, like and we talked about this a little bit. Like it's like when celebrities say things like, you know, I got a lot of haters. Is everyone hating on you or is it just people just calling you into account? Because you have shitty takes. Like, let's be honest about it. Right. Like, like, are you do you, are you saying objectively shitty things or right. are you saying things that like are kind of impact? Like, we're not even talking about Andrew Tate. Like, we can take that nut job yeah. out of the equation. Right. We're, like, but are you saying things that are meaningful in any way and people are just co- not connecting with them? And I think that is when I when I think about Twitter and I'm glad you said that, like, I notice that a lot on Twitter. I've become more active because of the show and different, you know, uh, uh, avenues I'm involved with. And I notice a lot that people have a lot to say about how they feel like they're being canceled or people aren't listening to them. And then I see the the other side of that where it's the ad hominem attacks and it's people that are just constantly jumping on. And it's like you're not doing anything. This feels very to use a, a lack of a better word, like a performative, like I'm jumping on this person and saying this because I don't agree with their stance. And I don't agree with their their position on this without actually bringing substance to it. And I think that's right. the biggest part of it, too. And I know you kind of alluded to it earlier. It's one of the questions I had. It's 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 a different mechanism um, and it's a different uh, vehicle for different people. Um, mm-hmm. Is there a different is and, and in that vein, too, as far as the Twitter uh, files or whatever you want to call it, is there a different mechanism uh, for cancel culture that should be used for celebrities and, and I guess people of power versus regular people? How do you think that sets in with the cancel culture world? Right. So it's interesting. So in my book, I do take a very um, interesting stance that has been a point of a lot of debate amongst people who read it, which I, I stand completely 10 toes down on it. I don't believe that everyday people are being canceled. Right. I, I believe that this is really a power struggle between essentially this is the everyone's like trying to figure out where is the, the struggle between. Is it between. Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and liberals, black people and white people, rich people and poor people. Honestly, I believe it is the people who have power and influence and those who don't, everyday people. That's the struggle. That's the power struggle that is essentially at the root of cancel culture. No matter how you frame it politically, religiously, socially, gender-wise, it is really a power dynamic between those who have the power and access and privilege and those who don't. And so with that in mind, if you are an everyday person, right, you're not a public figure, you're not a celebrity, you're not rich, you don't get canceled. You know why? Because you're what the things to which you would say you're being canceled for, you most likely violated a contract agreement. You most likely broke a code of conduct. You broke the law. Accountability is swift for you. It's easy. More more everyday people are being held more accountable for what they do immediately than, than powerful people. Right. Like I argue the super powerful and rich get away with a lot of things. They think they're above reproach. They can, you know, skirt through the law. I mean, Donald Trump was president and couldn't get arrested or indicted because he was a sitting president. So the way in which he could have been held to the law was different because of his stature. You know, that's not an everyday person. Like if he right. was an everyday person, like we're seeing now to a certain extent, indictment might be looming for him now that he's no longer president. 
But that's that's, you know, but everyday people, you know, I believe are the, often the ones who are getting swift, you know, consequences and they're they're held to different standards. So I always tell people this and this is the question I always ask. Who's holding the CEO accountable? So in Amazon, for example, it's easy for his employees to have HR and get a, you know, get fired or lose their contracts or get penalties. But Jeff Bezos does not have to oblige to the same standard. Right. What is the standard that governs him in the way that those employees are? And so when I thought about this book, I'm thinking about all of these powerful people who are above essentially the law, that are above this, the, the level of the scrutiny that all of us are. Like if you have you know that you are powerful when people have to boycott and protest and call for your, you know, your 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 stepping down. It has to be a movement to ask for the governor or the lieutenant governor or someone to, to apologize. No one's doing that to an everyday person to that level. There might be some people that have their little mini disagreements, right? Right. But essentially, the, the, the calls for hashtags and things, you don't see that happening to like just random everyday people, you know? And I right. think that that's important for people to know. So I've, I've had to tell people at my barbershop, I'm like, no, Carl, you're not being canceled. You just lost your job because you didn't respect the 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 social media policy right like right you know and i think i think that's in i think that's that's exactly what i was going to say was going to follow up is the fact that it's um the duck dynasty guy what's his name phil robertson from back i can recall it from 2012 right right? he goes on uh, he says it in the gq article he's talking about you know he's saying really really anti-gay sentiments and really offensive things a and E's like you're suspended, you're done, you violated our policies, and everybody's like, oh, well, he's canceled because he said something that he believes in. That's not how this works. No. Phil Robertson is employed by A and E and their parent company, and he is bound to the terms and conditions of his employment with them. That's One right. of those being, he can't say crazy shit in a GQ article. That's going to get That's him right. in trouble. And now but these are consequences, right? Right. Agree. No, agree with that hundred percent. But even even so. If, even if he was canceled, right, he could be arguably canceled. I, I could I could consider that a cancellation. But to be, but again, look at the levels here. You're getting a GQ article. You're getting a platform that can directly impact other people outside of yourself. Most everyday people that are getting canceled are not doing things to the scale at which it massively impacts more people than themselves. Right. And that's really at the root of the difference between powerful people being canceled and everyday people not being canceled. I would say to some extent he was canceled and I'm not, and I'm okay with that because again, what he did pose a different liability and risk and harm that again, n- everyday people are not getting GQ interviews. Right. Everyday right. People are not on a show with millions of viewers on a regular basis, getting six figure salaries or more to be on air. Right. These are, these are very much so first world problems that have 99% um, implications. Right. right. And again, it's like, it's, it is the idea that the, the, this metric, this system is allowing folks who are not at that elite level, that upper level to hold people accountable. And right. one of the things that I know you mentioned in your book and and the reason I brought up the episode in our archives, um, I had a guest on the show. We did, it was a different format. It was kind of like a round table. And, and, um, one of the co-hosts, Dr. Ruth, uh, had mentioned that, she felt the Dixie Chicks were really the only like a group of a handful of people that were actually really canceled. And I saw your face when I said that, oh, it's not real. And what I mean by that is the fact that the point being about cancel culture is that it takes away someone's livelihood, 
right? The Dixie Chicks went up against and said something against George W. Bush. They were blackballed, essentially, not just from country music, but from popular music in general. It torpedoed their career for many years, up until very recently. And what she meant by that and what the, the kind of the crux of the show was is that people are saying that cancel culture is ruining everything and it's actually not stopping people. But here are people named like Dave Chappelle or Mel Gibson who are still acting and still getting roles and still performing and being a part of their world. Do you feel like that is a part of this cancel culture? Like, do you feel like accountability is missing from the long-term end of cancel culture? So in my book, I talk about, I have a chapter that says not all cancellations are the same. And so one popular cancellation that people do fit in the mode, the same way that you're talking about um, the chicks, which I also talk about in my book, mm-hmm. um, is Prisette Michelle, who was this R&B artist that performed at the Trump inauguration in 2017. Mm-hmm. She lost her entire career after that. I mean, she really hasn't, you know, she doesn't fill out theaters. I mean, she went through a lot of depression and she just went from being a Grammy nominated artist that was really, you know, had a solid audience and following to now barely filling in seats and, and not getting the same bookings. But then you have Kanye West who did far more for Trump and, you know, how many lives did that cat have? Right. Right. So the, the point I'm making though, was that there is like that what I think happens in these conversations is that people are so hung up on the word cancel, but it's subjective. Right. Right. It's also different levels of it. Everyone's not getting canceled the same way. Everyone's not being canceled for the same periods of time. There's different, you know, crimes that fit the action, you know, certain punishments that fit the crime. So some situations where someone does something, you know, maybe a moment of shame, but it doesn't last forever. Um, I think people are so caught up in this idea of like, oh, canceling as a as a termination for good. And it's like, no, maybe sometimes it's simply that you get dragged on the Internet for a couple of weeks and then you apologize and you bounce back up. Maybe it's a situation where you need to take a hiatus for a period of time and then show back up. But there's different ramifications based on gender, race and the people that are doing the canceling. So it's very important to note that, like, OK, with Dave Chappelle, for example, what's interesting about Dave is that. The people that are often criticizing Dave for his offensive remarks are oftentimes people who may have not already been much of a fan of him to begin with. Mm. So there is some level of cancellation, let's be clear, because his reputation is tarnished. His legacy is tarnished. He has been able to still keep the shows and the money, but he, he will always now have that dark cloud hanging over his reputation as being the, the once promising star embattled. So now we will hear things like embattled, right. you know, Median, controversial. And Dave had a moment where it seemed before all this, he won the Mark Twain Award, all these other things, where it just seemed like he was America's funny guy and he was this, you know, provocative guy. But now he's fell into a different category altogether. And that's going to forever hunt him. You look at Louis C.K., right? Yes, he's Madison Square. But you can't not read an article now that talks about Louis C.K. without mentioning those things. So there is a level of the consequences of cancel culture that shape in different ways. It impacts legacy for some people. Some people, they're off the air. Some people don't make money. But there is, it is effectiveness. Because here's the thing. Look at us talking about Dave Chappelle. We can't talk about Dave Chappelle now without talking about transphobia. Right. 
powerful that those trans activists and their allies have made this such a global conversation that we cannot discuss these individuals without that. And then what it does is it puts the public in a position to have to grapple with how far they want to support these people or rethink it. And I think every day those types of um, moments um, build more awareness and it also is building a consciousness. And, you know, it's also maybe making them correct behavior. You know, one would argue, is Louis C.K. going to do those things again? I don't I don't know. I would think I would think not. I think that he definitely has been trying to be more publicly remorseful and accountable about what he did. And he was very much so outspoken from the jump to just acknowledge the problem and say he apologized. I mean, there's some people that feel like there needs to be sharper consequences, but there is some level of accountability that wasn't there before. And so I do think that we cannot dismiss the work of these individual groups, these marginalized groups that are speaking out simply because it's not taking shape in the way that some of us would prefer for other people. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Do you think Dave Chappelle could have saved himself some headache? I know I watched a clip of you on CNN. You were talking about Kevin Hart when uh, a couple weeks ago or a couple years ago, rather, he uh, the whole um, the his homophobic tweets and the things he were saying on stage. And one of the things that stuck out to me about what you said was the fact that it was like all he essentially and I'm paraphrasing, of course, and you can even dive into this a little bit more. Um, all he had to do was apologize and acknowledge what he said was wrong. And say, mm-hmm. hey, use it as an opportunity, right? Use it as a tool, right? And in my right. head, when I think about cancel culture, and I and I, I sometimes I'll use like the reference like Mel Gibson, or I'll use even like Hulk Hogan, mm-hmm. or some of these larger folks. It's like when I think about the idea of accountability and consequence, right? What is the goal sometimes? And this is like this is more of a rhetorical question to get into what you're to the question I have for you. When I think about it, it's like, okay, well, while these folks did really bad things, right? Like objectively speaking, everything that Hulk Hogan said in that videotape is terrible. Everything that Mel Gibson has said over the course of his career is terrible. What's the goal at the end of this for us bringing this? Is it strictly to say accountability? Is it strictly to bring these things to light? Or is it for some of the people who are like, no, we never want these people to work again? And what I thought was fascinating about what you said about Kevin Hart was all he had to do was come out and acknowledge it in a really like hey this was wrong i did this i own like self-accountability right own this and every single time it's brought up use it as an opportunity to say hey yes that's right i did this wrong this was not correct of me to do and it's never going to happen again and here's why do you think that that would solve a lot of issues for some of these people who have these more public uh, you know uh, uh public comeuppances when it comes to some of the terrible things they say, or do you think it's just, you know, it's just always going to attack, like what, what you said about Dave Chappelle? Yeah, so several things. So your your first question, you were saying, you're talking about the different types of the desires that people want. Right. I think all of those depend on what it is, right? I think some people are like, look, if you're R. Kelly, never again. Right. You know, if you're Paula Dean, um, some people might say never again, or maybe, hey, we need some more explanation. But at the end of the day, this falls on the person that was the person who did it. You know, what I learned from the Kevin Hart situation is I don't think that he was sorry. I think that the fact that he was very defensive about what he said is very is the truth in the pudding. I mean, I think that we can two things can exist at once, that these people can say how they feel and mean what they say and say, you know what, there may be babies and whine about people's reaction. That's what annoys me about Kevin Hart is like, Kevin. Let's be clear. And this is what I think the public makes the mistake of doing is that we're such a forgiving people. Some mm. of us are. 
we are so quick to say it's a mistake, but was it a mistake? Right. Are these mistakes like let's define mistakes? Mistakes are in the or it would be arguably something that the person who did it should say. Kevin Hart wasn't out here saying he made a mistake. We projected that on him. And that's because we live in a society around celebrity culture. We are also a group of people that have that protective nature, especially around people we like and admire. We want to give them the benefit of the doubt. Sometimes we do it so much that we get into victim blaming. Sometimes we're so, you know, in awe of certain celebrities and people that we just want to see them win, that we will suspend disbelief, suspend, suspend, you know, logic sometimes in order to, protect them. And so a lot of times I find people doing the PR for the people that should be doing the PR themselves. So when the Kevin Hart situation happened, people were like, oh, you know, people make mistakes. Does he consider it a mistake? He's doubling down to a certain degree. He's, 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 he's doing everything but apologizing because he's not sorry. Right. Or, Or to some extent, the way that he took forever to get to that point is because that's not how he felt. And that's the same thing with Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle doesn't want to bend in that way because he really feels the way he felt. And sometimes people have problematic beliefs that are hurtful. And some people are just downright mean and cruel and they don't care about people's feelings. And so what to do about people who don't care? And that's when council culture figures it out. Those people decide what should be the consequence for people who are going to persistently hurt. And so there's oftentimes this bad narrative that victim blames people where people are so focused on what's going to happen to that powerful person with the bad thing that they're not thinking about the offended. So I'm oftentimes thinking this book when I wrote it about the people because I've been gaslighted before. A lot of marginalized people, women, black and brown people, disabled people, poor people, working class people are oftentimes gaslighted for taking a stand against things that that are harmful to them. We're oftentimes told you, 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 you read it the wrong way. Hmm. You, you didn't, you, you didn't understand or, you know, let it go or, you know, give that person the benefit of doubt. What about second chances? But we're never taking a chance to interrogate the culprit. Right. Are you sorry? What are you sorry for? What are you going to do to not make this happen again? We're not interrogating the actual culprit because we're so busy gaslighting and trying to silence the oppressed. And, and I feel like that's what's happening that oftentimes happen. Like, I don't think Kevin Hart was really sorry. No. Dave Chappelle has not tried to really apologize for any of this. They consistently pursue to do in their own right. And they, they're, they're, they're standing 10 toes down. And the funny part is that their supporters, a lot of them don't even want them to apologize. That's what I was going to say, and I just read something today about Joe Rogan doing this anti-woke club, which miss yeah. me miss me completely with that. I, I'm not going to spend if I'm spending nine hundred dollars on something, it's definitely not going to be that. But I nine hundred dollars. It's nine hundred dollars to get into the club. What yeah. a grifter! I'm like That's this grift. And what's crazy is this man said the n word dozens upon dozens upon dozens of times. Right. Those were not mistakes. And you know we're having free speech conversations, and I and I, I know we might get it, but I just it's, no, it's, it's okay. Yeah, now. you know, you know, there's this ridiculous narrative, right, about free speech, free speech, free speech, censorship, censorship. But you know what's funny is that nobody, none of these guys, like, see, I could understand conservative viewpoints on censorship and free speech if they kept that same energy across the board. 
Right. So for all the people that are defending the use of the N-word or protecting people from saying transphobic, homophobic things and Islamophobic things, all these horrible things, it's really hate speech. Let's be real. It's hate speech. They're so quick to want to defend hate speech, but they're not invested in the other aspects of free speech across the board. So all of a sudden, it's censorship if we say Joe Rogan can have a podcast on Spotify for saying the N-word several times and giving out misinformation around vaccinations. But it is okay for Colin Kaepernick to be blackballed for not taking a knee. It's okay for Black Lives Matter protests. It's not okay for Black Lives Matter protesters to protest civilly. It is not okay for black authors or queer writers to write books and put them in public libraries. We're okay with book bans. We're okay not to say gay. We're trying to punish girls from talking about their periods in high school. Which is insane. We're doing all of these types of things. And that's not council culture. That's not massive censorship. I mean, we're dealing with a Fahrenheit situation right now. Yes, very clearly. That, okay, we're dealing with, you know, Animal Farm, 1984. I mean, we're going into dystopia. And this is happening from those individuals. The same people that want to protect Dave Chappelle's ability to say transphobic things are the same people that want to ban books from people that look like him. Make it make sense. Well, I mean, again, you're right. Like it, it doesn't it the the application of logic and the application of this idea where this is okay and we're gonna say this. It's the whole Roseanne Barr thing. Oh, my pronouns are kiss my ass and None of that right. is funny. Like it doesn't it doesn't land for somebody like me. But now we're going to sit here and we're going to say, OK, well, now we're like you said, we're going to pull thousands of books out of public libraries and in, in elementary schools. We're going to bag uh, ban um, drag performers inside of clubs and drag lunches and drag brunches because they feel like there's some sort of, you know, sexual tone about it. Meanwhile, I've never heard of any drag performer assaulting a child. But every single day on Twitter, I see more and more about these youth pastors assaulting children inside of the schools. And that's OK. But we're continuing to promote those narratives but we're not uh, it's just not ap- applying across the board and i think for me it's very frustrating to have these conversations with people who say listen you know we can't we can't say these things or they should be allowed to say whatever they want uh up until you know the at we hit the asterisk point on this uh i'm glad that you brought that up because i feel like again too louis ck you mentioned as well there's the whole thing with him and ricky gervais on the video with chris rock using oh that God. word and i remember watching it initially like years ago and being like feeling a lot like the way Jerry Seinfeld was. Like, why are we saying, like, what are we doing here, guys? Jerry Seinfeld is a man who's, he's Jewish. He understands that there is, and some people have lost this sense of intersectionality, which I do talk about in the book, um, understanding that the hatred in the intersections of these different identities cross over. Mm-hmm. You start letting people say racial slurs, they're going to go into anti-Semitism very quickly. There's a connection there. You you around people who are very sexist, they typically are homophobic and transphobic. There is a connection because they are caught up in this patriarchal system that is often built upon bigotry. Right. And that bigotry does not have a religious color. It, 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 it's it's going to get everybody. It's, essentially. It, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's um. I often think about that myself as I'm, I'm also in the LGBT community, and I think about that as well when I when I think about how specific instances and specific words affect me as the individual, right? Mm-hmm. And how I interpret that, but also in the fact that you're right, like it's not a hard stretch for somebody to use a racial slur and then you know say something homophobic to me or say something you know um, anti-Semitic to one of my friends. 
all of those mm-hmm. things are together. So I think that's also a larger part of the conversation where it's like, hey, if they're so comfortable with saying this, how much, how quick is it going to be for them to turn to Seinfeld and say, oh, you know, X, Y, and Z? And I think that's right. that's it a big missing part. Door. Yeah, it opens that door. But this is a lack of empathy um, and also a lack of, of concern because there's so many people operating in silos. Mm-hmm. So you see that happen where there's a lot of people who are in these individual silos of um, ideas. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm black and queer. So for me, I can't, I see all the intersections. And so right. it puts me in a position to, you know, be invested in feminism as well. And, and just crossing out hate because we see there's a pattern that it does eventually knock on your door in some way. And a lot of times it will knock on the, when it knocks on the gay door, it eventually knocks on the black door. And if it knocks on the black door, it eventually knocks on the gay door. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's just, and it's knocking on all the doors. I mean, you think about Kanye West as mm-hmm. a textbook example of somebody that started off very much so anti-black, very misogynistic first. It was a lot mm-hmm. of misogynoir, a lot of misogyny there. And then the misogyny led into anti-blackness. And then anti-blackness led to anti-Semitism. And, you know, it's it's just, it just always goes in that way. Just you look bad, at Mel Gibson, Mel Gibson out here with all the racial slurs and anti-Semitism came and the sexism. It's all in the same family. And you're looking at these very powerful people who align themselves with platforms that give them that voice. Notice the platforms that's given these people this voice. I mean, when you're looking at like I literally canceled my Spotify subscription. I took my podcast, Ernesty Speaking, um, which is on Apple, on Google. You can find it everywhere else. You can go on my website and click and listen to it. Um, but I took it off of Spotify when the Joe Rogan thing happened. Mm. I took it off because I was fed up. I, I saw all that I saw. I was trying to see what Spotify was going to do to, to to address this. And they just, they gave some money to some black creators. They created some money to support black Spotify users at, at one point, like diversity and stuff. But they kept them. And then when I found out it wasn't 100 million, but 200 million, I said, Mm -hmm. okay, so you all have an investment. And I wonder what if Joe Rogan would have attacked another community, will we be having that same conversation? And I talk about that. Not all cancellations are the same because there is double standards, I believe, in what people choose to cancel and what when when the line is drawn. There is a line, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes I, I do feel like. You know, they'll say things like, okay, somebody being homophobic, we're not going to take them off the air for that little joke, maybe in some cases, some some communities, they may not care. Right. But then they'll say something, you know, sexist, and they're like, you know what, maybe that's the, that's the okay, that's going too far. And in some groups, they might say, okay, well, that was racist, but, you know, because they're all white, but then anti-Semitism, okay, that's it. You're going off the air for this. You're, you're getting punished. So I just want people in our communities to keep that same energy across the board. Let's not wait for someone to be offensive to another community when they've been offensive to one community. Like, if we're right. going to check behavior, it shouldn't be this ranking of what's more important. Like if somebody is being outright homophobic, that should be enough. Not wait for them to be a racist to then say, okay, now you've done something racist and homophobic. Now you go. Or wait for them to be anti-Semitic before you say, okay, you were sexist and you was racist, but now you're anti-Semitic. Now you go. And that's my line. Right. Right. The line should be no hate. No bigotry. Whoever, 
Like that should be the line. And we're, and, and I think that's why certain people have gotten away with it over others. Well, you could use that to like, you could definitely say Donald Trump is that person because it feels like consistently the goalpost for him constantly moves. And the same thing could be said about Kanye West, right? Oh, he didn't mean what he said there. He was actually just talking about X, Y, and Z. Oh, well, he maybe have said that that anti-Semitic comment, but, but he didn't really mean it. And now he's posting the photos of the anti-Semitic. And it's like, we should be looking at these things, you're right, in like a in a bubble, right? We should be looking at them collectively as if he says one thing that's bad, there's probably a really good chance he's going to say something else that's bad. Why are we not checking these people earlier? And now we're promoting and we're platforming these folks. And it's just, it, 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 it boggles my mind sometimes. I know you talk about it in the book too, as far as the way that the left and the right use cancel culture, they use it. Uh, the left, I feel like uses it more to say like, Hey, that's enough. We're not going to take that, that level of abuse anymore. We're not going to take that level of conversation anymore where the right uses it in the wrong way and you turn into situations where you're like, you know, in in Joe Rogan, uh, where now he's got an entire woke club or anti-woke club, which seems absolutely ridiculous. Um, but do you think there's any other mechanisms that like just regular people can use uh, every day? Anything that you think may be more powerful or yield more power um, for everyday folks outside of cancel culture? Do you think there's anything else that people can use in their everyday life? Outside of cancel culture? Mm-hmm. Um, no, <laughs> I think part of it is because it's, it, we, we, we can cancel in different ways, right? Mm-hmm. Canceling in different ways because it's the scent essentially. Right. So council culture in the sense of I'm not voting for a person, you know, I would argue that the voters canceled Donald Trump from the presidency. Right. In 2020. That's more what I was getting at. I apologize. I was thinking of like mechanism of justice. Like how right. can people use that power? Right. Right. It's all, it's all part of council culture. Council, council culture is an ide- ideology is more so it's an action, but it's also a, 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 a state of mind, right? The decision to check someone out or, or to stop. That's a decision-making tool. How we act on that decision is where it varies, Right. Some people might say, look, I'm not going to vote for this elected official. Some people will say, I'm not going to vote for them, and I'm also going to protest outside their office. Some people might pass a petition and say, let's, let's get the word out. Some people might share and express their, their views in a way to promote others to do the same with their platforms on social media. So there's various ways that we participate in council culture every day, and I don't think we can be without it because essentially that's where the power and accountability comes in. Right. Boycotts demonstrations, dissent in the form of op-eds and opinion pieces, tweets and all that fits there. That's all a part of dissent. And so without the ability to dissent, you don't have the ability to cancel because that is essentially what it is. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Now, I know you just mentioned tweets and, and being canceled. I know that you, I remember this. I remember your tweet to Justin Timberlake in 2016. And I'm, I know I wanted to bring it up because I, I know it's in the book and I want to talk about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but Tell me about how that experience shaped you uh, when it came to cancel culture. Tell me about how that impacted your world. Because I know there was a there was a really kind of crazy situation that happened because of that. So tell me more about that. Yeah, so it's been so many years now. But 2016, <laughs> I mean, the BT Awards was happening. Um, Jesse Williams, who's an actor, won the Humanitarian Award. Um, gave a really poignant speech about Black Lives Matter, about cultural appropriation, and these other really important topics. And Justin Timberlake was tweeting about how he was inspired and 
And I just was like, you know, I felt like it was kind of performative. I was like, well, did you really hear what this man was saying? Because a lot of the things that Jesse Williams was saying and how I was hearing it, I felt like Justin was guilty of them, you know, Mm. extract black art and his whole career, looking at how he was someone who was blue eyed soul. And he was this figure that really did that, but also had a history of disrespecting the greats. I mean, when you're looking at the way that he threw jabs at Prince, the late great Prince, the way that he had, you know, um, did Janet Jackson, you know, all of those things came to mind. So I quote tweeted him simply saying, you know, so does that mean you're going to apologize to Janet Jackson and stop culturally appropriating essentially. And he he responded back, um, you know, saying, oh, you poor sweet soul. It was very condescending and in my opinion, borderline homophobic. I don't think he would have talked to me like that if he didn't, you know, pick up that I was queer because my, page my my twitter account you know identified such and it was very you know it was very obvious um on on my page but i also think he did it because of power i think that i didn't have that many twitter followers back then probably like maybe under 2000 for Mm -hmm. sure I, i didn't have a huge twitter following i was a freelance journalist in philly i was staying in a 450 a month studio apartment i was 24 years old. I'm 31 now, but I was 24 then. Um, I I was writing for a free paper, newspaper in the city. Like I didn't have this massive amount of influence and visibility. And I think he looked at that and thought, you know what, I could take this guy and say something. Like, would he have said the same thing to someone else with probably a bigger following? Probably not. I don't think so. But it was something about my tweet that he wanted to respond to. And so what I learned about cancel culture that, you know, initially all his fans started to just, you know, attack me online. Initially. Right. But then there was other segments of people that saw what was happening, Black Twitter specifically, and was like, wait a minute, this guy's right. And Justin, you're you're a jerk. And everyone, largely the, the narrative back it through time, it it backfired on him. Right, right. It became another conversation. And he felt like he had to apologize. And but he was being canceled in that moment. And I think that that moment, I mean, since then, there's been several things. He wrote a song inspired by the incident with me called Say Something. That's the song that was on the Billboard top oh. ten. Got a Grammy nomination. If you listen to the song, say something, and he's talking about it, he's talking about me. Wow. And that situation. I mean, that, right. that situation inspired him. He was in an interview with Zane Lowe from Beats, and he said that that, was that, and that whole incident inspired that song. Wow. wow. And so I inspired a song. I mean, that's, I mean, you know, there's, there's wins in some things sometimes, Mr. Owens, but (laughs) it it was, you know, it wasn't, it was what, it what felt like L became a W. Right. Um, But I think overall, what it showed me in that moment was that it doesn't, it doesn't matter how powerful, big or small, there's a David and Goliath situation is at play here. Mm -hmm. And in that situation, I was definitely David and he was Goliath. But with facts and with passion, those are the things that can shift and change the trajectory of where we go as a people. Um, and, and, and there are several instances like that that we've seen in society. One voice, one small voice, one unknown voice 
that speaks out or someone who isn't as relevant as they used to be that speaks out. You know, I think about, you know, Tarana Burke and Me Too. Right. I think about the women that were considered at some point in time D-list, C-list celebrities that was the first people who decided to take a stand against Harvey Weinstein. Mm-hmm. And so it's always been that way in our history for the most part, that it was always the people with, you know, the least protect, the less, the least, the least protection, the least, you know, um, the, the most to lose. I mean, to their livelihoods, right? right? The most at risk, I would say. Those individuals were the ones that were at the forefront of these movements around cancel culture and still is. And that makes sense because I argue it's a power dynamic. Yes, I agree. I definitely think it is. And I think I also thought about when you were talking and you were mentioning those names. I also think about Hannibal Burris and that entire That's situation right. with Bill Cosby. Now, if you're from the Philadelphia area, you're yep. very aware of mm-hmm. Mr. Cosby's uh, uh, dalliances, if you will, and his, his yeah, issues. Over a decade of conversations, longer than that. It was not but, a secret. You know, <laughs> it wasn't a secret. I mean, and people knew about it. And, nope, it's not. and I, I don't mean to um, compartmentalize or say that like Hannibal Burris isn't as popular or isn't as important, but it really was. It was like a flashpoint moment. And I remember looking at it and kind of watching it in real time as it was happening and going, wow, this is like because of this. This is mm-hmm. now becoming a, a national conversation about Bill Cosby, and it led to all of the things that happened from there. But you're right. The, pi- the power dynamic behind ca- cancel culture, this is a metric that allows folks who may not otherwise have that power to use whatever resources necessary to say, I'm not going to take this anymore, and here's my story, and here's why you should not follow this person or, or be a part of this. Um, I also felt, I remember reading that tweet, and I remember feeling very much like he was very condescending to you. Like, I don't, like, I feel like there were so many other phrases that he could have used in that moment. And to use something like, oh, you sweet soul, it was almost like he was patting you on the head. And I was like, okay, you've already lost me in this conversation. If you didn't lose me before, you've already lost me. And to watch people have a, a more of a dynamic conversation about his career and um, what that means in context to, you know, black voices and things of that nature, um, I thought it was important to see that come to light. One of the things that bothers me about the conversation with cancel culture is things that people say about specific movies. They sort of, they retcon things, right? I know Mel Gibson, or uh, excuse me, Mel Brooks just made History of the World Part Two, and one of the big movies that everybody talks about all the time is, is Blazing Saddles. And oh, a movie like that could never be made now. What's your, what's your argument to that? Do you have a response to people who say, oh, well, we could never make a Blazing Saddles now. We could never make an Animal House now. Uh, people would be too sensitive or people would try to cancel them. What's your response to people who say things of that nature? Well, I mean, we've evolved as a people. And what I would say is that what do we what do we what are we trying to do? We're trying to be better people. We're trying to grow. And I just think that if you think that the only way to be funny is by being offensive, then you don't know anything about comedy. If you think that comedy is only about punching down on the little guy or the little woman or a person um, is comedy, then I need you to rethink comedy. I think what we are recognizing is that there's a reckoning on morals, on values, on respect and manners. And that's what this is essentially about. It's a reckoning of power. It's a reckoning on all of the things and bad habits that we've endured and we've embraced. So let me answer that question in a different type of way. You know, 50 years ago, no, no, let's go back. 1950, okay, 
2023. In 1950, the only person in this country that had all the full rights and privileges to basically dissent, like to be pissed off, was white, Christian, straight, cisgender men. Those are only ones that had all the full rights and privileges to basically speak their mind, do whatever without any kind of repercussions or consequences. So as the time began to evolve, more people got a piece of that pie. And what I think is happening in society right now is that as the things, the, the, the movies, the things we read back in those days were shifted by those people's um, abilities to cancel and say what they want and express how they feel. We're sharing a democracy with more diversity and more people that have the ability to come to the table and share their views. So you have to imagine what it was like to be a white man in 1950, where all you heard was your own opinions. Mm. Now you have to hear everyone's opinion. Now other people telling you what to do, but now you also have to share consequences for expressing views that once upon a time you never had a consequence for. I mean, for most of America, it was more so in the privilege of white men's interests than everyone else's. I would argue that the, 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 that 1964 civil rights act was what really kicked off a lot of difference in who can speak and and whatnot. Mm. That was only, what, 60 years ago next year. Yeah. We've only had 60 years of civil rights. Right. So imagine the rest of the, I don't know, 200 and something years right. of not having it. And now everything is coming. Everybody's having this conversation now. And now you are trying to, you're trying to live in a world where your voice was the only voice, but now you're being held to a different standard. Right. Correct. And so, yes, the animal houses and some of the other things that was created back in those days where it wasn't too many people who had access to pushback. Yeah, we lose some of those things because now there's people who can, you know, push back against it. And that's what a democracy looks like. It's democracy in action. I mean, it's yeah. literally you're changing the world around you. And that's that's because, what this is. Because most people that's like, OK, well, they'll start with that. But listen to what they're saying. Oh, we can't have an animal house now. OK, but then they'll say things like, but we can't have, you know, an Amos and Andy now. We, we can't have, you know. Televangelists on TV saying homophobic things now. Right. We can't have rap lyrics that have the F word in it and not the you know, profanity, but the other profanity, right? We, we can't have, you know, Dilbert now. <laughs> right, you know, right. Like, they, yeah. they, like when, when does it, you know, think about what they're really getting at here. Yeah. No. What they're, what they're saying is that we're not allowed to say the hateful, inflammatory, nasty things that we have had the privilege and the openings to say for the past 200 some odd years. Now, right. all of a sudden, it's, oh, well, everybody's offended. Well, yeah, of course we're offended because we don't want to hear this shit anymore. We don't right. want to hear they you be racist. To, yeah. They never had to deal with those consequences more so now. Right. And now it's been amplified with new mechanisms like social media and Twitter and things that they never had to deal with back in the day. 
Right. And now it's all, it's way easier to bring those instances to light because, I mean, Michael Richards, I guess you could say, was like the first real person who got caught up in the yeah. social media age, right? That's right. I remember, I remember, I mean, we both remember seeing that. I was like, holy crap, like what's happening here? Why would you? And I often think, I think about this a lot too. I often think about, and even, you know, not to compare the two or to conflate them, but um, with the murder of, of George, George Floyd, I wonder yeah. what the outrage would have been in both of those situations. Again, not comparing them, just putting them in a, right, in, right. a you know, linear, what the outrage would have been if the videotape hadn't have existed. Or if there had Agreed. been someone that Agreed. was there that said, "Like, holy crap, this is Agreed. wrong, man. This is terrible." We watched. Him, we watched. We watched George Floyd be murdered. He was cho- choked for eight and a half minutes before he died. And here's yeah. Kramer. You know, this person who was uh, amplified and and beloved by millions of people, going on a racist tirade on stage because someone was heckling him. And if there hadn't have been that, I know there's always, uh, you know, it's 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 believing the victims and believing people who are oppressed in these situations. They're constantly the ones that have to to be the ones to prove it without a shadow of a doubt, right? Right. And Michael Richards, and with, go ahead. And even with the no, but to your point though, but even with the proof, then it's a mistake, right? Right. Then it's a a benefit of the doubt, right? A bad day. Yeah, it doesn't feel like a bad day when he's so. Right. It just so so eloquently falls out of his mouth. It's just it right. it. It feels very again those those types of things. It's 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 shifting of the goalposts in these conversations, and I think that becomes, in a lot of ways, reductive to having an open conversation about these things. Because ultimately, what in my opinion, what cancel culture boils down to is like, look, we just don't want to hear this stuff anymore. We don't want to be spoken right. to like this. We don't want to have these situations where we have to defend our livelihoods or or who we are as individuals and people by hearing these things all the time from these people and instead of 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 acknowledging it and like you said too about kevin hart just accepting the fact that they did something wrong and saying hey i messed up it's really wrong let me use this as a learning tool they dig their heels in and they get defensive and then it becomes this larger conversation about oh well you can't say these things you can't make me not say anything anymore and i think it becomes it, it makes it less there there's less of an of an option to have a conversation with someone like Joe Rogan or Dave Chappelle uh in these instances but um I love this book I really enjoyed it it's the case for cancel culture how how this democratic tool works to liberate us all Mr. Evan uh, Mr. Ernest Owens this has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show tell everybody where they can find you on social I love your Twitter feed by the way um I love I I follow you I have alerts on for when you tweet because I love your your takes I love all your articles so tell everybody where they can find you on social Yes, yeah, so I'm at Mr. Ernest Owens on Twitter and Instagram. So it's at M-R-E-R-N-E-S-T-O-W-E-N-S, and that's on Instagram and Twitter. Um, I also have my website, ErnestOwens.com. Um, you can book me for speaking engagements, keep up with the latest from what I'm working on. My podcast is directly on there. It's Ernestly Speaking. I do it every week. It comes out typically every, uh, every Monday. Awesome. And again, this book is available now everywhere. You can go and check it out. Mr. Ernest Owens, thank you again so much. I appreciate your time. Look forward to having you back on the show. Thank you. Foundation Radio is hosted, recorded, and executive produced by Adam Barnard. The show is also produced by Sam Kreps. Special thanks to Greg Mead, Joe Keen, Jeff Quinn, and Dr. Ruth Almy. Our intro and outro music is produced by Dumb Ugly. 
Find this episode in our full archive at foundationradio.net. Follow us on Instagram at foundation underscore radio. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your favorite podcasts. This has been a Foundation Radio production. Butts Carlton, proprietor. Proprietor.